The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 12th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Let me extend my welcome. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege now of leading us in God's Word for the next little bit. I was reading uh, a couple of weeks ago, getting ready for the upcoming season in the church, and I came across this in the book Bread and Wine. Saints of old often refer to a kind of dread, the nagging sense that we have missed something important, that we've somehow been untrue to ourselves, to others, to God. The Lenten season is a good time to confront the source of that feeling. It's a time to stop hanging on to whatever shreds of goodness we perceive in ourselves and a time to ask God to show us what we really look like. I was reading and I shared that this morning because on Wednesday the 22nd, 10 days from today, we are going to have our annual Ash Wednesday service here. And that is the beginning of what is known as the Lenten season, 40 days leading from the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday morning. It is a journey in the life of the church towards the cross. And historically in the history of the church, that Lenten season is a season that's marked by reflection, by asking the Lord to search us and to show us Give us a picture of reality. Who are we? What's going on in our heart? Who is he? We're asking God to bring us, to bring our hearts into his light. And I'm excited about Lent this year. Um, honestly, because I think as a people, we, we need it. We need the season. And this year, we aren't going to be doing what we would normally do in the life of the church if you've been around for a while. We like to start with the beginning of a book of the Bible, work our way through to the end, kind of verse by verse, thought by thought. We're not going to be doing that for the Lent season, but we will be taking God's word and, and asking him to search us, to show us not only who we are, but to show us what it is that our hearts really love. To get us there, we're going to take this week and next week to kind of lay the groundwork for the Lenten season. Why is it that it might be a time in the life of the church that we desperately need? And this morning, as we begin to kind of lay the groundwork, I just want you to know that I'm just praying as I talk and trusting God to use his word by his spirit to wake up each of our hearts to why. Why such a time? Why such a season of asking the Lord to search us and show us might be so important for us now. That he would give us ears to hear what he has to say in that. It became really important to me and it sat on me a good bit a little while ago as I came across uh, uh, what was called an evangelical manifesto or a manifesto to the evangelical church written by someone that many of you probably are familiar with, Pastor Ray Orland. If you've been here for a while, if you're a guest with us this morning, you have his book on the gospel in that little bag that you may have got on your way in. If this is home for you and you haven't received one of those books at some point and read it, let me know. We want to get one of those into your hands. 
But decades ago, in a book on spiritual renewal, he actually wrote in the preface this manifesto to the church. And I read it again recently, and it has been sitting on me and bothering me ever since. And I'll read a little bit of it to you this morning. He said this, we evangelicals today are suffering massive defeat, brilliantly disguised as massive success. He goes on to talk about the rising numbers of conversions reported by the church, the rising number of churches being planted. And he said, rising numbers of such conversions and things are coming alongside with rising statistics in lifestyle in the church that look just like the rest of the world. To a shameful degree, we Christians can become indistinct from the world around us. Why? One reason is that we think in a piecemeal fashion, and our lives show it. We do not perceive reality from God's perspective. We perceive reality from the perspective of our own fallen culture, and then we try to slap a biblical principle onto the surface of our deep confusion. Consequently, very little actually changes about us. What we really need is not to be pandered to, but to be re-educated in reality. Reality as it's interpreted for us by the gospel. We need to know who God really is. We need to find out who we really are. We need to understand what our root problem really is and what God's merciful answer is. And we need that new perception of reality, I love this image, to percolate deep down into our affections and desires reorienting us radically and joyfully to a whole new way of life. Without it, he says, evangelicals today could marginalize or even lose the gospel, yet still putter along the way, perhaps being even oblivious to the fact that we've lost it. I sat with the extent of his manifesto to the church, I was reminded of a quote that's been attributed in the life of the church to D.L. Moody. I don't know if he actually said it, but it's been given to him, but I remember it. Moody said, our greatest fear should not be failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. And as I read Pastor Ortland's manifesto and thought about Moody's words, I thought to myself, that ought to terrify us. Succeeding in that which really doesn't matter. Puttering along. Unaware that we've left Jesus and the gospel behind. It ought to terrify us. When I thought about my own life and my own history and the state of just the church, I... I had to come to grips with I'm not really sure that it does scare us and I'm not really sure it scares us because I'm not really sure we've ever given serious consideration to what Jesus might think about that reality. What might his assessment of that potential be? Now this isn't new to us in the 21st century. This isn't one of those things where you get to get up on a soapbox and rant about technology or all those kinds of things, bringing these kinds of problems. It's not new. 
The church has always been vulnerable. It's always been susceptible to leaving Jesus behind. In fact, there was a city in the early days of the church in the Roman Empire. It sat on the I-95 of the Roman Empire, right? Much like our own city today. You, you had to go through this city and stop in this city if you're going to make your way from one end to the other. And because of that, it, it became a city that became well known for its banking industry because there would always be lots of exchanges of goods and commerce and currency along the way throughout the empire. And along with that, with the banking and, and what came with that, in the region of this city, the farmers became very uniquely adept at raising a particular kind of sheep whose wool was more durable than anything else produced in the empire. And not only was it more durable, it came from a, a sheep that was only raised in that region of the area that had a dark charcoal colored wool. It was a black wool. So famous did this wool become that he became a, a, a mark of, of status, a, a mark of value if your textiles or your clothes were made with the wool from this city. And then in this city that sat at the I-95 crossroad in the empire, a, a medical school had developed, had grown. It became quite popular throughout the empire. But it wasn't just the school that became popular. Out of that school, doctors had created this kind of pumice or, or a salve really that became known throughout the empire for being able to deal with and cure many ailments of the eyes. People would travel far and wide if possible to get their hands on this ointment for their eyes. And so this city sat right there. It was a place that people would come to. It was a place that prospered in its industry. It was a place that had many things that impacted and exported throughout the entirety of the empire. It was an amazing place that sat kind of on this interesting little plateau in the region so that it looked out even on all the cities around it. But it had one particular Achilles heel. Like Richmond, it sat on that crossroads of the main interstate through the empire. And like Richmond, it was a river city. The Lycus River came right through the city. And like Richmond, you wouldn't dare drink out of the Lycus River. Like, <laughs> I don't even advise you in some parts of the city to put your foot in the James River. Like, it's just one of those things you know, don't drink that, right? Well, that creates a problem. In fact, you're familiar with a guy named Cicero, Roman philosopher. Cicero would travel through the empire. And he was famous for writing in his own journals that it had the most detestable water in the entire empire. To solve the problem, what they tried to do, Romans, engineering, architecture, amazing, they looked around them, right? And to their north, there was a city famous in his day called Hierapolis. You can still go to modern-day Hierapolis today. It was famous because they had these, just a number of these amazing hot mineral springs that came up from the earth. People traveled from all over the empire to Hierapolis to sit in those hot mineral springs that were to bring about health and well-being and healing to the body. And just to their west, this city was east, just to their west was a city called Colossae the city to which Paul wrote the letter we have to the Colossian church, the city of Colossae, it sat at the foot of the mountain range. They had the most beautiful, magnificent, flowing mountain springs coming down into that city, alpine-like in its cool, refreshing water. 
So what the Romans did is they created aqueducts from Hierapolis and Colossae into this city to pipe the water in. Brilliant, right? Except for the fact that by the time it got to the city, the cool, refreshing, alpine-like water of Colossae had become quite tepid. The hot, healing springs of Hierapolis had been filtered and concentrated through that stone aqueduct into the city. And it was like room temperature Alka-Seltzer. Together, it became undrinkable, right? To this city, in in some ways, reminiscent in, in a lot of ways of our own, Jesus, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, gives a very stark reality check, a wake-up call, loving, sobering words for his people there if they would only have ears to hear. And this morning, I, I just want to encourage you, friends, it, it's a sobering word for you. For us, if we would only have ears to hear what Jesus has for us. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 14 through 22, and Jesus speaking to the church in the city of Laodicea. This is the word that Jesus has for the church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, knowing a little bit about the city, you realize the imagery would have hit them right between the eyes. No confusion about what he's alluding to and what he's saying. Jesus, the risen and ascended king, is offering his assessment of this church's spiritual condition. And what's the assessment? Lukewarm, the translation gives us. But what does that actually mean? If you've grown up in the church, I'm sure you've heard the word used. You've probably used the word at some point. What does it actually mean? It's helpful to get a little bit of the context and the history around it to understand it. Well, in the history of the church, in interpreting Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea, there have been two primary ways the church has understood what it means when Jesus speaks of his people being lukewarm. Two primary ways. Both are theologically accurate. They're both contextually accurate relevant, they both kind of fit together. They're not mutually exclusive. It's not really, it doesn't really have to be either or. Both actually fit. So I'll give both of you, I'll give you both of them this morning. The first, and and what people are probably most familiar with, is that when Jesus speaks of his people being lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, he's speaking of their affections for him, their affections of heart in relation to him. They're neither cold, indifferent, or in denial toward him, nor hot, fervent, in affection for him. Instead, they're just tepid. 
Now, one of the ways that people begin to fall into this particular interpretation is because they understand what it is to be lukewarm in contrast to what he's going to say in verse 19 when he calls them to be zealous for him. Because in the Greek, the word behind zealous actually means to boil. In Romans 12, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Paul tells the church to be fervent in spirit. Same word. It means to boil hot in spirit. So understanding lukewarm, it means not boiling hot in spirit and affection for Jesus. It would mean being tepid. Room temperature, in a sense. There's, there's neither any life-shaping, life-altering zeal for Jesus or cold, indifferent denial of him. It's just eh. Now, one of the things that people struggle with, with that particular interpretation, is trying to figure out, in what situation would Jesus ever say, I wish that you were cold towards me? Right? I wish, that's what he says, you were either hot or cold. When would Jesus ever say, I wish you were in cold, indifference, or denial towards me? And the way that you begin to understand what he's saying, the way to be saying, in particular, in this interpretation of what it is to be lukewarm, is to understand that Jesus saying, I wish you were cold towards me, is his way of saying, it would be better for you if you were just blatantly and unhypocritically indifferent and in denial towards me. Better for you to be there than for you to continue to put on the pretense and the air of being mine, the air of the church, a form of religion that at heart has no affection, or as Paul would say, any power towards it. Better to be coldly indifferent and clear on where you are than to be tepid, lukewarm, comfortably numb in relation to me. That, Jesus says, is the most dangerous place to be. You know it. You know my grace. You know the mercy. You know the gospel. You can recite it. You can talk about it. You can say it. You can confess it. You may even believe it. But as one writer says, you don't see the implications and are therefore impervious in heart to it. And you're offended if someone tries to talk with you about it. How dare you think that's me? The other primary interpretation has to do with the affections, but it sits in a more contextual place with the actual city that it's being spoken to. So you've got the healing hot waters of Hierapolis here being piped into the city and the cool, refreshing waters of Colossae over here being piped into the city, yet when they get to the city, it's undrinkable. It's tepid. It's useless. Jesus says, here's what I've got to say. I know your works. Same thing that we've seen in Psalm 119. I know your way, your works, your manner of living. I know the priorities that are ordering the steps of your heart. I see your manner of living and your works and what they're actually reflecting as what is most important to your heart. And they're neither hot like the springs of Hierapolis offering to a watching world the healing grace and mercy of me and the gospel or refreshing 
There's no reflection in your life of the refreshing, refreshing nature of my peace and of my mercy and of your communion and relationship and intimacy with me. They're neither healing nor refreshing to you or to those around you. They're useless. Would that you were one or the other, but it's useless. I look, I see what drives you, how you live. When it comes to me, it's tepid, devoid of expressing any affection for me or my kingdom. Either way, that refreshment and that healing that, that's born out of a deep affection for Jesus or simply just the affections for Jesus being indifferent or in denial or, or zealous. Either way, I love the way that Marshall Siegel kind of put it together in a journal article he wrote. He said, these souls, speaking of this lukewarm assessment, are souls with just enough heat to feel comfortable in church, just enough fear not to hurl themselves into gross immorality, just enough guilt to open the Bible every once in a while, just enough need to pray on especially hard days. They don't give up on Jesus, but they don't give him much of themselves either. They attempt to stay Christian enough to avoid hell, but spend most of their time, money, and attention trying to find heaven here on earth. What does Jesus have to think about this? He literally says, it disgusts me. It nauseates me. I want to spew it out of my mouth like you do your city's water. Water that you would only drink if you needed to induce vomiting, because that's what it does. His assessment of this condition makes me sick. Tepid affection for Jesus in the gospel seen in tepid and anemic lives that don't live in a way that testifies to his glory, to his affection, to his gospel's power. Listen to him. He's not going to coddle it. He's not going to make space for it. This is the way the risen and exalted Jesus sees the spiritual condition of this church. The question is, the same question he would have for them. Do we have ears to hear him? Do we have ears to hear the assessment? Or do we begin to hear it and feel ourselves start to get offended by it? Do we hear him and decide you're just going to dismiss it altogether? Have you already tuned me out 10 minutes ago? Do you hear it and think about someone else? Do you have ears to hear? How did it happen? How did the church get there? Like, how do they find themselves in, in this condition that when Jesus looks at it from his perspective, he gets sickened by it? Well, verse 17 tells us. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. 
not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What's the root underneath the whole thing? Well, it's a lack of self-awareness coupled with an inordinate affection for the things of the world. This church, remember, he's talking to the church. This church is looking at itself and all of its abundance and all of its prosperity, and they're equating that abundance and that prosperity in life one-to-one with their spiritual health. I must be doing all right. God must be super happy with me. Look at us. Look at me. Look at how it's going. The church had become absolutely self-sufficient and self-consumed. Their minds had begun to believe that they were self-made in all of this, so much so that they no longer sensed their need for or felt their affection for Jesus. They could do all the things they were supposed to do. They were still the church he's talking to. They're still showing up. They're still checking the boxes. They're still gathering together. They're still doing all the things. But underneath, when it comes to that which really matters, Jesus looks at them and has an utterly different assessment of the situation. He literally drops this reality check right in their lap. And the way that he sees them is completely different than the way that they see themselves. Right? And spending time with this letter and thinking about it and going through, all of a sudden, I couldn't help but think, and you'll be familiar with it, it that great Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor Has No Clothes. You know the story? The emperor, wealthy emperor, ruler of his kingdom, these two swindlers come to town. You know the story. They come to town and they convince the king that they have the ability to weave these magical garments with this magical fabric that will be invisible to a certain people. And the king is like, yes, I want that. I have to have that. So he sets out on them providing these clothes for him. Now, weavers go about doing their thing. They get the looms. It all comes together. The emperor checks on them. His officials check on them. People come to check on them. And the looms are empty. And they're just sitting there. And they just keep going on about the business. Oh, this is going to be great, right? And the fateful day comes. They say they're done. And they come to the emperor. And what does he do? Strips down butt naked. No clothes on at all. And these swindlers take these magical clothes. And they kind of mime putting them on the emperor. No one said a word to him. He goes out into the town on this big procession through the city and everybody's watching him. He's just strutting down the street. Everyone's too afraid to say a word. They're just going to go along with it. The one little boy steps up. Says he's got nothing on. (laughs) Friends, that's Jesus to the church. Just strutting around. Look at me. Look at all this. And Jesus drops the word of reality that no one wants to hear and everyone's been too afraid to say. You're naked. You're not enviable. You're pitiful. You're not a winner. You're wretched. You're not rich. You're poor. You're not aware at all. You're 
totally blind. Jesus' assessment of the spiritual condition of his people is totally different than their perception of themselves. He judges by something that we don't judge by. We get fixated on everything on the outside, right? Like that church, get fixated. We look on the outward. Oh man, they're doing so well. They must have figured it out. They've got it right. This church is walking around thinking they're the envy of the city. We've got it right. Not only are we morally right, doing all the right things, but look at us. It says, I don't look at the outward appearance. That's not what I look at. That's not what I judge. Here's the dose of reality. I look at the heart. And like that emperor, the church has no idea. Totally blind. Totally blind in its own assessment of itself. Deceived. Having bought into a surrounding lie. Here's the thing. Before you write them off and before you condemn them, you've got to realize that we are them. As the Western American church, we are this church. The very same abundance and prosperity threatens to walk us straight into the same spiritual malaise and tepidness that this church found itself in. Where Jesus isn't our comfort. Jesus isn't our affection. We look for this world to be our comfort. Our ease and our affection. Tim Keller said it this way. And some of this stuff, you just got to go to people older than you and wiser than you. Who have lived longer than you. Keller said it this way. There is an absolute direct link to our prosperity and our spiritual lukewarmness. Why? Because when you're accomplished and when you're making money, you may find yourself saying to yourself, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. But existentially, the reality no longer grips your heart. The knowledge that Jesus loves you isn't a miracle. It doesn't electrify you. You say you believe you're a sinner, but you don't actually feel like much of one at all because you become numbed by the world around you looking at yourself. Look at me. What I've done, what I have, what I've accomplished. And you become numb. And because you don't feel that you're a sinner when you look around at yourself, you don't actually feel that you're a miracle of God's grace. There's an absolute link, he said, between being affluent and being spiritually lukewarm. Because our affluence fools us. The global church if we're not going to listen to someone older, wiser than us like Keller. The global church has been trying to tell the American church this for decades. Read any account of, of members of God's church from around the world who have come to America, spent time in the American church, and their assessment of us and our vitality, and it's shocking. The words that they actually use are words like appalling. And their assessment of what becomes so appalling of the American church, they link directly to our comfort and our safety and our affluence. Because we're so prosperous and because we're so comfortable and because we're so safe and we've bought into thinking that's something that we've done and equate it like this church one-to-one that God must be loving us that much, in their eyes, that's why we don't find ourselves having any kind of intimacy or connection with God in prayer at all. We don't pray. They come to America and like, you guys don't pray. 
You don't sense your need for him. You don't sense a desire to be with him and to know him and be known by him. You're, you're pretty comfortable with yourself. And not only that, they come and spend time in our churches and, and spend time in this country and they will write how appalling it is, how prosperous the church is and how much of it we actually spend on ourselves. It's not the prosperity that appalls them. It's how much of it we spend on us. How much bigger our houses get. How much bigger our cars get. How many more storage units we have to have. In fact, I was doing a little bit of research about this. And just a heads up, we're going to talk more about this during Lent. But a study came out in 2018. It was a global study. And it said, what would happen if the confessing Christian church started to actually tithe to the church 10% of their income? Forget what it means to give sacrificially. Just this one number. <clears throat> According to the study, $165 billion would become available. Sociologists have said $25 billion alone could put an almost ultimate dent in global hunger and eliminate deaths from preventable diseases within 10 years. $15 billion could deal with the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places where a majority of people live on less than a dollar a day. 12 billion would end global illiteracy. 1 billion could fully fund an overseas missions work from the church just in America. 100 and 110 billion would be left over then for additional local ministry expansion. The global church has been trying to tell us for decades the same reality that Jesus has been speaking to the church. And the thing that they leave with that's just shocking to them not only in the lack of intimacy and desire to be with Jesus they see in our lives and our prayers and how much resource that God has blessed us with that we then spend on ourselves in light of all around us, they walk away just shaking their heads that in a place like ours where it is so safe and it is so comfortable, we're so afraid to actually be Christians in the world. It was only 1963, not a long time ago, when Martin Luther King wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham prison. And he said, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In that time, the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. That was their power. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Why? You know, you know, have you read it? You know why he says that's the case? He says because the early church was too God intoxicated, too hot to be astronomically, he said, intimidated. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. We're in the 21st now, friends. He said, every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church. Same thing the global church has been telling us. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Friends, don't condemn the Laodiceans. We are just as vulnerable as they are. Jesus' word to the church in Revelations chapter 3 is a striking word of reality. 
It is a reality check for those who have ears to hear. But he doesn't end it there. I'm not just going to pray and walk out. We could, but he doesn't end it there. Verse 18, listen to what he says. I counsel you to. So here is the resurrected, exalted, reigning King Jesus saying, here's my counsel to you. If I were you, here's what I would do. Right? Here's reality. I'm giving you a picture of reality. Now here's what I would do in light of that. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might be rich. White garments so that you can clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Traces of Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who's thirsty, come to me. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Wait a minute, Jesus. You just told me I was poor and pitiful. How do I come to you and buy from you what I need? Oh, you, you just come to me when you have nothing. Come and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Because what you desperately need, I freely give in myself. That's what you need. Jesus doesn't say, go and sell everything you've got, get rid of everything you've got, renounce the prosperity and the abundance of the church. No, he says something much harder. That's the easy route. Everyone wants one of those. Give me the easy route out. What do I do? Just get rid of all that. Well, that'll be difficult, but I can figure out how to do that. He says something harder. He says what needs to happen is there needs to be a value exchange, a currency exchange in your heart. Come to me in exchange for me. The affection and the hope and the trust and the sense of security that you put in all these things that you think have made you somebody. That you think have made you enough. That you think have made you right. That have fooled you into thinking that you were rich when you're really poor. That have fooled you into thinking you're totally self-aware when you're blind to the reality of who I am. Come and exchange those lies for me. For me. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline. You've got to understand these reproof, this reproof, these hard words from Jesus, this reality from Jesus, it's because he loves his people. These are words of love. If he didn't love his people, he would have just let us keep going on in our illusions and our delusions. But it's because he loves his people that he comes with these words of correction, these words of reality. Your tepid affection for me makes me sick. But it hasn't changed my love for you. I'm still committed to you. That's grace, friends. You've got to have ears to hear it. And it's hard because we spend so much time and effort and energy in our own lives trying to build a a life around us that keeps us from having to hear this kind of reality check from anyone else around us. We like to build all kinds of different boundaries in our lives so that no one can come and say something like Jesus says to the church here to us. But we get so good at keeping it out that we often don't even hear Jesus himself. These, these hard words of Jesus, this reality check, it's, 
It's not meant to, to cultivate or inspire despair in their heart or self-pity. They're hard words of love that you might repent and be zealous again. That you might repent. See your condition as he sees it. See the lukewarmness as he sees it. See reality from his eyes that you might own that reality and cry out to him for help. Again, go to him in that exchange of value and currency, laying down again at his feet all the things that you've held tight to thinking that they made you something. It was repentance that Luther said sums up the reality of life for a Christian. All of a Christian's life is repentance. When we stop repenting, we start growing lukewarm. That's what happens. When we build a Christian life where we're always right, we're always making excuses, we're always keeping ourselves hands distance away from the truth and from reality, what happens is our heart grows lukewarm. Repentance is the way we return to being zealous of affection for Jesus. And it gets even better. It's not just that he gives them a picture of reality and helps them see himself and and tells them why, how they've ended up where they are, how we've ended up where we are, that he gives us a way forward and out of that tepid reality and towards being zealous for him again. He goes one further. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You You heard this one? It's the great evangelistic verse from Revelation 3 in the service. Everybody comes and prays and gets saved, right? It's not about evangelism. Again, read it in context. Who has Jesus been talking to? He's talking to the church. This was a church for whom Jesus just became too much. Too many opinions, too much zeal. Too much passion, too much demand, just too much. They were doing okay. They haven't even noticed that he's outside. They just can keep going on with their regular church routines, going on with their regular church lives, going on prospering in their everyday life and moving on with things, not even realizing he's over here. They've become tepid. And lukewarm. But listen to him. However lukewarm your heart has grown, listen to him. Pay attention. He hasn't left. He hasn't left. He's still speaking. Look at the picture. He's standing outside in the cold, but he hasn't turned his back on you, he hasn't walked away. Your heart may be growing tepid and lukewarm towards him, but his heart hasn't grown colder towards you. It's still hot towards you. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Like get the flannel graph shepherd Jesus picture out of your mind. This is the resurrected, risen, and exalted, and enthroned king saying, I want to come in and eat with you. 
You've got to realize that doesn't happen. In days and ages of emperors and kings, they didn't come eat with people at their houses. The king didn't just say, I want to come eat with you. Eating with someone, especially in these cultures, was so precious and so priceless. It was the place where relationships were built, where intimacy was formed, where connection was developed, where trust was gained. That's what eating was. That's what the table was. And the exalted king just said, that's what I want with you. Look to me. Come to me. Look to me. But to have that exchange in heart and that value I've got everything you need, and I want to be with you. This is what I want with you. Not only that, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. But who gets a king like that? If you'll come to me for me, and I'll not only forgive your sin, I'll not only heal your soul, I want to be with you. I want to bring you in to that which only, only I have actually earned or deserved. You're to sit with me, not just at the table, but on the throne. Friends, that is the most scandalous grace you could ever imagine. We get with Jesus what only he deserves. And he brings us into it. Because he who was the one who was rich beyond imagination stepped down from his eternal throne and entered into our world as a human, taking on the form of a man, poor, he truly went from eternal riches to rags for us. He allowed himself to be stripped naked and humiliated before being nailed to the cross so that by faith in him, you and I might be clothed in the robes of his righteousness. He took on poverty, so that by faith in him, you and I might know the riches of his eternal kingdom. He allowed himself to be blindfolded before he went to the cross, where he was beaten and mocked. Come on, prophet, tell me, who's hitting you? He allowed himself to be blinded so that by his grace through faith in him, you and I might truly see, see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, our King, who wants to be with us, who invites us to himself, who wants to clothe us with what only he has earned or deserved. He allowed himself to be stripped and beaten and blindfolded and crucified like a wretched sinner. A pitiable, wretched sinner. Because he was zealous for the glory of God and zealous for us, his people. Friends, that is the kind of king that we have. The only reasonable response for us is to give ourselves wholly to him. Do you hear Jesus' word to the church this morning? If you hear his word of reality, receive it in love. 
respond in humble repentance. You get him. You get Jesus. You get communion with him. You get conquering in him. You get affection for him. You get zeal for him. Friends, he doesn't want to spit you out. He doesn't want to be nauseated by his people. He wants to eat with and enjoy and laugh with and sing with us at the table of his grace and mercy and not only at his table but with him on his throne. Do you have ears to hear him? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to you, to the church. You pray for us this morning as we get ready to respond to God's word together. Father, reality is often hard for us to see and hear and accept. There's something in our heart that that wants the illusion, that craves the illusion. Lord, give us ears to hear your word of love this morning, a love that's willing to speak truly to us. Help us to hear your words of reality and your love that we might receive them and respond to them and have life and joy and affection in you. But it takes a work of your Holy Spirit in our heart for that to become a reality. So we ask this morning, this week, in this season, as we go through this season of reflection, that you would do that in us for our joy and Jesus' glory. We ask it in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.